This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering three conversations from episode 47. Opinion leaders discuss big stories of summer. In this conversation, newly appointed Professor Ian Rowe selects the FDA's approval of ELF as a prognostic test for cirrhosis as his story of the summer. The conversation revolves around the importance of using tests that provide continuous rather than ordinal scores, and Louise Campbell's focus on what we will need to diagnose and treat patients in poorer countries as the Nash Tsunami spreads all across the world. This episode is full of big thoughts and bold aspirations. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Roger Green. Two weeks ago, we did this with patients and patient advocates, Wayne uh, Eskridge, Tony Biliotti, Donna Cryer, and we got the largest audience we've ever gotten for a patient-focused issue, which I thought was really interesting. So we felt we'd come back this week and try it again with some of our KOL friends, and we'll be speaking this week with Ian Rowe, Michelle Long, and Manal Abdelmalik, and it's kind of the same idea. One interesting story the last six months, except we're going to treat this a little more like a typical episode. So after I say hi to Louise and Ian, hey Louise. Hi, everybody. Ian, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you, Roger. Pleasure to be here as always. Okay, good. So we're going to do icebreakers. Who wants to go first? I'll jump in first. I'll leave the rest to Ian. I spent a very pleasant week with my parents, driving them around the Isle of Man. I think I claimed neutrality before in an episode being Manx, and therefore, like Switzerland, we're in the middle of everything. My mother is Manx, so we were visiting family, graves, you name it. We were doing every single road on the Isle of Man in a week. It was very lovely. It was very nice. And for anybody who knows the Isle of Man, we did say good day to the little people every time we went to across the ferry bridge. Excellent. Top that, Ian. I didn't think there was anything new I had left to learn about Louise, but that certainly has has done it. I guess, so for me, it's a sort of personal and professional highlight because in the last couple of weeks, I've had confirmation from the university that they'd like me on their permanent staff and they've promoted me to associate professor, which um, having been there for a few years and with some delays due to COVID, that's been a great relief and sense of pride. With that, there's a bit of momentum in Leeds now to develop liver research in Leeds, both basic science and also applied and outcomes based. So that's a big step forward, both professionally, but also personally. Ian, that's fantastic. Bravo and well Fantastic earned. news. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And we can say we knew you when. Yeah. Well, I have to say a little thank you because the panel were impressed with my public engagement work as part of the podcast. So that was a little added bonus. And so thank you to you too for having me on and, and listening to me. And learning from you. Enough that I'm certain you'll be a fantastic professor. But to all our listeners who aspire to get a full-time academic position, please send us all your brilliance. We'll bring you on as we have the end and we'll see how many careers we can help advance, but I love it. So congrats, Ian. That's great news. First of all, a couple of best for the podcast really quickly. We actually hit number one in Macedonia this week, the number one medical podcast in the country, which the first time we've been number one anywhere in the world. We'd been number two previously in, I think it was India at one point. So we've now actually been number one in Macedonia. And again, in this case, rose to 110 of all podcasts, all topics in the country. We've also debuted on the medical and health and fitness lists in Russia. We came back on the India list at number nine, and we had 11 countries in the world today where we made their top podcast lists, which speaks to, I think, the general momentum of the podcast over the summer. So for those of you who've been listening, we're downloading morally. Thank you very much. My personal best is for the first time in a decade, I ran a 5K and ran within two seconds of the time I ran a decade ago, which when the decade is not between 15 and 25, is actually probably pretty good. That's enough good stuff for all of us. And, and Ian, floor is yours. One story, publication article, news story, presentation of the summer that you've seen that uh, 
You think it's a really important fatty liver community? Now I'm an academic, I can not choose papers. The thing that really caught my attention was about the FDA approvals of ELF, so the blood test for fibrosis. And one of the things that often surprises me is the way that systems develop in parallel and at different speeds, and that's often governed by regulatory differences. And we've had ELF available for use in the UK for five years routinely and for longer than that as a research tool. We've used ELF quite a bit in the and it's been useful and it'll be really interesting to see how it's rolled out in the US because there are distinct advantages in the way that it can be deployed because it's blood-based, it's quick and I would say relatively easy because you get a single number back at the end of it which allows you to provide some interpretation of the patient's future risk of liver-related events. The other thing that it led me to do was to just go digging around a bit on the FDA website in the biomarker qualification program. And you can begin to see there what the future impact of non-invasive tests might be in terms of their use in clinical practice. There are several now applications, both from the Litmus Consortium in the EU and from the Nimble Consortium in the US, looking to identify or validate markers against approved contexts of use. And those contexts of use are really around enriching for patients in clinical trials, but that's not a very small step from enriching for patients in clinical practice for treatment. And so these steps towards overall non-invasive testing for liver disease and away from liver biopsy is really the thing that I'm most excited by because it's the thing that will make the biggest difference in clinical practice in terms of patient identification, risk stratification, and ultimately treatments and improved outcomes. That is what's excited me. I think there are other developments over the summer that I'm sure that other people will talk about in therapeutics and in other things. But, but this step, and it's a relatively small step, but it's a step towards the non-invasive diagnosis and therefore downstream treatment of people that perhaps make the biggest difference in terms of who we can ultimately treat. So um, first of all, thanks for that. And well explained. Two of the three patient advocate biggest things of summer, Wayne Eskridge talked specifically about this. And then Donna Cryer talked about in general, which she actually started with the easel guidelines, but wound up talking about advances in ways that, that beyond the biopsy was moving forward forward in this being one of them. Donna was careful to note the limits of the indication that the FDA granted. But what I'm struck by is that that indication plays well against the comment that you made, because they're talking about prognostic for cirrhosis, right? So if, if the biggest problem in clinical practice right now is, can we find people who are just pre-cirrhotic or clearly on a fast path to a bad place, and we can sort them out, that's probably a place where we can have the greatest impact on the economics and quality of life of the disease at a per-patient level in one shot. Yeah. So cirrhosis and people who are at imminent risk of events is the where treatment today is stands the chance of having the greatest impact. And I'd be a bit surprised if nobody talked about fruxifermin in one of the other episodes, because that's a treatment where there is potential to see benefit in the short term with treatment reduction of reducing progression of cirrhosis and reduction of clinical events in a short and very clinically meaningful time frame. One of the things about using ELF and other non-invasive tests is it will allow us to risk stratify within cirrhosis and also in the pre-cirrhotic stages, F2, F3, and into F4. And by that, I mean, at the moment, we're sort of stuck with these ordinal stages. Your F2, so your risk of a liver-related event in the next 10 years is 1%, for instance. You've got F3, suddenly that risk is 3%. You've got F4, suddenly it's 10%. And that's not the reality, because we know that fibrosis progresses gradually. A patient doesn't go from being F2 to F3 and have a step change in risk on a single day. It's a gradual change. And these biomarkers 
markers that have a continuous scale, ELF, Fibroscan, MRE, all of them really, that gives you the chance to give better, clearer prognostication across a continuous scale. It's not 1%, it's 2.5% versus 5% versus 7 versus 10 versus 15. That's where the real value of the non-invasive test will be above biopsy because they'll give a much clearer idea of what's likely to happen to the patient in a probabilistic sense. If I take 100 patients like you, I know that 30 of them this year will experience X or 10 of you will experience Y. And that's where the cardiologists are and have been for a long time now, framing and risk indices, the ASCVD calculators, and they give you that risk and they show what the impact of treatment might be through modification of that risk. Whereas with cirrhosis and F3, it's almost binary. It's this risk or that risk. Having a much clearer idea about risk would certainly, it would aid clinical decision making. And I think it would help patients understand what their risks actually are. Well, no, I agree with everything Ian was saying. And for me, to move it slightly away from the Western world and the impact that non-invasive technology has, and particularly ELF, Fibroscan, MRE and that for us, when you talked about cost effectiveness and the greatest potential to in the more severe disease and the imminent patients that we could locate, there's been a recent set of publications on the rapid rise of NAFLD and NASH in Africa. Third world, middle income, low income, developing countries and the potential for non-invasive therapies in areas where we're seeing a rapid rise and the other non-communicable diseases like type 2 diabetes rising, heart disease obviously, all of the ones that we know that are linked. The potential greatest impact for me as I'm coming from a more wellness aspect is the earlier location of liver disease in income strapped countries where it could have the greatest effect both socially, economically and development. If we can stop these countries reaching the levels that we have seen and do see in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, all the usual suspects, then that has the greatest potential for me and where non-invasive technology could re- and blood markers like ELF and the prognosis and all of that really, really have vast abilities to change what is currently a tsunami. They're coming to, but not quite there. And I just wondered whether or not that's where our greatest potential for these non-invasive technologies is because they are limited on finances and resources, but ELF could be deployed. Lots of other biomarkers could be deployed. Fibroscan combined with these, they can be done relatively cost-effectively without biopsy. We are moving well beyond biopsy and that's why what Ian's brought up and Wayne and Donna is absolutely vital. It is a massive movement. There will inevitably be a balance between cost and, you know, an impact of what you identify. And because the prevalence of disease is so high and the majority of people with fatty liver disease won't develop progressive liver fibrosis and die from liver disease, if the test is about identifying those people who are going to die from liver disease, then probably the first step is going to have to be cheap in order to make it both deliverable and cost effective. In that context, it has to be a blood test first, not an imaging test, because you can't put, you know, in the UK, we can't put 15 million people through an MRI scanner or even a fibre scan, probably. So very simple, cheap test is likely to be optimal. If the question is not only about liver disease, and that, you know, takes you back to that sort of wellness aspect, then it may be that we've got even cheaper and better things like body weight or BMI or waist circumference that might provide a very good guide to people's overall metabolic risk and the cardiovascular risk calculators which calibrated to the appropriate populations will give a good indication of what that risk is. When we talk about these these tests we have to be clear what it is that we're trying to do, what it is we're trying to prevent and how we're going to impact the patient's remaining unanswered question about what telling people about their fibrosis severity means to them and at what point that information meaningfully impacts on behaviour change. And we see patients in clinic where the information 
definitely impacts patients, but we also see patients where it doesn't. I saw a man today in a post-transplant clinic who the light bulb moment for him was not abnormalities in his liver, you know, in his liver blood tests after transplants. The light bulb moment was going to his mother's house, standing on her scales because she'd said to him, you don't look well, you've put on a lot of weight. And that was what it took for him. And that understanding between individuals what it's going to take to make the difference is a big missing piece in our jigsaw. Louise has observed more times than I've got fingers and toes on this podcast that one of the nice things about FiberScan is that visual finding, being able to show people pictures has an impact that you tend not to have when you can't show pictures. So this isn't that, right? These are numbers, they're blood-based numbers. However, if you then had to take the next step, Ian, and you didn't have the good fortune of having mom saying, get on the scale, son, you don't look good. What within your armamentarium tests and tools do you think would have the greatest probability of helping that patient understand their problem? And Louis, same question to you. I think we can learn from what other people are doing in terms of risk prediction and risk communication. So the idea that you could provide a more bespoke risk estimate to a patient based on a health or transient astrography value gives that opportunity to put that result in context and we know now that presenting that information graphically in terms of the number of people um, who are going to be impacted, good outcome, bad outcome, hopefully in the future of those people with a predicted bad outcome, what's going to be changed with treatment. We know that that helps people understand what the risk to them is and that helps to stimulate change in treatment particularly, but probably also a bit behaviour change. But what we actually need is better information about what absolute risk is and, and how we communicate that with a patient graphically. Ian's absolutely Right. But I think graphically is the key. Perspectum have recently released a patient piece of research. And funny enough, it's exactly what we were talking about in the podcasts, probably as they started that research or before that, is the fact that visualising it. And obviously, MRI, PDFF, you can visualise. They do it nicely as we do at Towers and Health in red, amber and green. You make it understandable. It is important to find out what they want, what their outcomes are. It may or may not be, I want a better quality of life or I want to sleep better. All of that is very much enhanced with a visual aid and a language that is understandable. I've said multiple times, I have patients that come to us having seen in their letters and discussed ad infinitum that they've got cirrhosis, but don't believe they've got cirrhosis in the same way as you would get cirrhosis from alcohol because they don't drink. So it's education about the presentation, the symptoms, how they're going to affect you. And visualisation, the advantage that I have being able to do fibroscans so regularly on people is they get immediate responses, they get to see it, and they get to see the alteration that a small change can make very quickly. And once you see small changes, even over a couple of weeks, you get motivation. They know that you can achieve something. My husband managed to defat his liver. He dropped sugar. He didn't drop weight, but he changed diet context. He improved the quality of diet and actually dropped his cap score by about 40 over a couple of weeks just on dropping sugar. He's a phenotype that responds to sugar very quickly and not. And the fact that you could do that within a couple of weeks of changing that diet without seeing massive weight loss actually motivated him to continue. And then the next scan. So where I'm in that luxurious position, I can do that. A lot of healthcare they don't have. They don't have the time. Post-COVID, we, do, we have long lists. It's very, very difficult. Stephen has said it before, that if you don't catch somebody within the first three months of trying to change the behaviour to give motivation and reinforcement, it's actually very difficult to sustain. But with FibroScan, with PDFF, with MRE, with all of these new visual diagnostics, it's great because patients actually can see the internal change and they really respond to that. So it's very much listening to and engaging 
with that patient. You'll find the right lever in 99.9% of people. And as Ian says, that light bulb moment, it's about persistence, about staying engaged with that patient and staying engaged. It can take years to get that light bulb moment. But if you're always there, they start to trust you. And that's really, really important. One of the pieces of work that I'm proud of, which is which doesn't really show our carers in a great light, is about patients' understanding of cirrhosis. And these are patients who are coming to our medical clinic before we had a nurse-led cirrhosis clinic. And very few of them really understood what was going on. They didn't know why they were having the tests, but they were coming for them. Um, they didn't really understand what the risks of cirrhosis were. Some of them didn't even know that they had cirrhosis, despite the fact it was clear that they'd been told, they'd been signposted to information, and sometimes even given information. We're undoubtedly missing a fundamental aspect of helping the patient understand their condition and engaging in the self-management that in a lot of what we deal with, lifestyle associated, whether it's alcohol or diabetes and obesity, if we don't engage them in understanding their condition, then making the changes to behaviour is likely to be even more difficult. I totally agree. And I remember writing an editorial for a gastroenterology nursing about hepatology nurses are an asset to be cherished. Because actually, if you get a good hepatology nurse, if you get the time and the effort to be able to do that, you will give far more information over a longer period of time that people respond to, which keeps people out of hospital. The other thing that you say there with your nurse-led cirrhosis clinic, which we had at Imperial as well, is about the education of the family around that patient who feel lost. If that patient becomes encephalopathic, it's they're the first people who can see it. It is an entire system around those people that need to be, and that nurses and medical teams together with dietitians that can really, really, in cirrhosis patients, be absolutely valuable. If there are centres out there without nurse-led cirrhosis clinics, then I'd strongly advise you to develop them because they are vital to support your hepatologists and gastro teams. It's a no-brainer for me, but I'm a nurse specialist in that field. So, But I'm glad you are doing that work. I, I commend you for it. It's a great piece of work. I agree. We don't have much time left. I want to ask a very different question, Ian. I want you to give about a 30 or 45 second answer, and then we're going to do final and wrap up. Last week, Mayo Clinic team put a paper in hepatology about the ability to use liver stiffness measurement to do prognosis in chronic liver disease patients. Here's the question. If MRE can do a robust job of setting prognosis for chronic liver disease patients, but isn't an accessible tool, one of the Stephen talks a lot about is tying MRE to biopsy results because then you actually can use MRE as a outcome and then you're beyond the biopsy. This is one step beyond that, which is how likely do you think it is that people, particularly in some of the environments that Louise is talking about, will try to go beyond the machine, try ELF or other blood tests to MRE and take your point about prognosis and, and triage even one step further. So we don't know enough about prognosis for ELF in widespread clinical practice. Biopsy has established itself because of its link with that long-term outcomes and the nature of liver disease is that it takes years, some tens of years to develop outcomes. Now we can enrich populations now with the information that we have to be able to gain that information quite quickly. And with tests that are widely used, we can leverage health informatics database type research to work out more clearly what the impact of those tests are. So I think we'll be able to get there quite quickly. Personally, I think we've got enough non-invasive tests now. We've probably got far too many and we need to try and rationalize those. And I hope that that's what Litmus and Nimble will do. Ideally, they will come together and say that we think test X is the best 
or tests X, Y, and Z. So you've got one or two blood-based biomarkers, an imaging biomarker, probably it'll end up being two ultrasound and MR. So here's a panel of four, five tests. This is what we're going to use. Get on and validate those against prognosis. Forget about biopsy. Once you've done that, then we can look at treatment-associated changes. And with that pathway, you'll have a way forward to get beyond biopsy and provide compelling information about the outcomes and modification of outcomes with those biomarkers, because that's what we actually need. We don't need any more studies of diagnostic accuracy, in my view. If there's one sentence or one thought that you want our audience to take away from this discussion, each of you, what would that sentence be? I would say non-invasive tests, be it blood-based, ELF, or imaging-based with elastography, because they are continuous, offer the possibility of personalized risk stratification beyond what's available with liver biopsy. Well, I'm going to jump on Ian's cirrhosis nurse and the clinic, and I'm going to say that if you've got limited resources, if you want to enhance the care that you give patients as a physician, then you need to enhance and really would benefit from enhancing the care and support the patients get through education that somebody like a nurse specialist for cirrhosis, particularly as we're talking about that population, can provide and deliver because it will reap both the patients, the family and the gastro or hepatology units fast rewards. These patients are time consuming if they're inpatients. If you can keep them out well educated, well supported with a direct point of contact, you really will enhance your care, your practice for your patients and yourselves. The soapbox I'm going to jump on is about numeracy and how little people understand about the meaning of numbers. Look, cirrhosis is something that's poorly understood already because issues around alcohol, etc. But even if we get better prognostic estimates of what might happen to an individual patient, the individual's ability to process those numbers correctly in first pass is, let's just say, marginal. People can take a patient's hand at that moment and walk them through the journey of understanding what's about to happen to them and what they can do to affect it. In that regard, probability might not be as powerful as a picture, but used right, I think, can cover a lot of ground. And with that, I'm going to stop the tape. Ian, actually, Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations on um, an eventful summer. And I'm looking forward to having you back with us at ASLD, if not sooner. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, September 29th, with our next episode. I hope you will join us then. And until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>